Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to NYC. Hi everyone, I'm Jen Fisher, Associate Pastor at Forefront Church in Brooklyn. If you're listening to this podcast today and you live outside of New York City, we want to invite you to participate in our Sunday services by watching us on Facebook Live. We'll begin streaming on November 13th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Just go to facebook.com slash ForefrontNYC or slash ForefrontBrooklyn to join us. Now in today's episode, I'm interviewing Rabbi Orr Rose, the founding director of the Miller Center for Interreligious Learning and Leadership at Hebrew College near Boston. He's speaking to us today about some of the key values and ideas in the Jewish faith. Now here's our conversation with Rabbi Orr. Good afternoon. My name is Rabbi Orr Rose, and I work at Hebrew College, which is located just outside of Boston in the city of Newton. Um, Over the years, uh, one of the major foci of my work has been interreligious engagement. And I've been blessed in this capacity to be working very closely with colleagues at Andover Newton Theological School, which is our immediate neighbor. And in the context of that relationship and that work, we've developed a whole slew of programs and projects. One of those is a new initiative called Heart to Heart. And the aim of Heart to Heart is to try and provide Christian learners with some knowledge of the basics of Jewish spirituality. And we took the name Heart to Heart from a Jewish folk saying, which means words that come from the heart enter the heart. And so it's our hope, it is our intention, that in introducing some of the treasures of the Jewish spiritual tradition to Christians, that we'll be able to convey what is significant to us, what matters to us, what animates and energizes us as religious people and as those seeking wisdom, spirit, and purpose in the world. I was really grateful for that, for your website, for the Heart to Heart website. It popped up in my email box just last week with a a membership to access it, right as I was trying to write a sermon around mitzvah and commandment. So I was really Mm -hmm. grateful to just have some resources to pull through and to kind of better understand more of what you were talking about when we first met at the open conference and to have some resources to understand the Jewish culture and, and study a little bit more as I was writing. Um, so I was wondering, will you tell everyone what that website is and how they can get a subscription if they're interested? Sure. So again, the name of the website project as a whole is heart to heart. And the website address is www.jewishwisdom.info www.jewishwisdom.info. Nice. And do you guys, you have specific a specific audience in mind for who you're trying to reach with this? Like, is it people who are just regular churchgoers who could benefit? or We're trying to reach out broadly. We've heard over the years, both from colleagues and from students, folks who are ministers, priests, nuns, lay leaders, adult learners, that they have an interest in learning more about Jewish text and tradition. And so we wanted to try and respond to that thoughtfully. And we're also growing the 
other components of the program to include webinars and an in-person experience for uh, Christian leaders specifically, a seminar in May 2017. Nice. So one of the things that you talked about when you and I met at the Open Conference was you talked a little bit about the word teshuva, um, a Hebrew word, and you talked about it in regards to the High Holy Days, which just ended. We just came out of that season. And I know we live here in New York City. We're actually recording this podcast in a very Jewish neighborhood. And I know that the majority of us, especially as Christians, we know that we have days off from school or that the bank is closed on certain Jewish holidays here in New York. But truthfully, we don't really know what our Jewish friends are observing during those days. So I was wondering if you could kind of explain or break down for us a little bit of the season that you all just came out of and kind of break down some of these high holy days for us and this idea of Teshuvah. Sure. So let me begin with the Hebrew term itself, Teshuvah. And I'll create the following context based on several classical Jewish texts. We as human beings, simply put, are fallible. And so we need opportunities to forgive, to seek out forgiveness, to make amends. And tshuva is the term for that complex process. Tshuva as a concept is so significant to the ancient rabbis that they said that God actually created tshuva before the world came into existence, which is to say in a powerfully literary expression that they couldn't imagine a world without the possibility of reconciling with one another and with the divine. The high holidays, that is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, are seen as a special season for tshuva which is to say that as we begin a new year, we have this notion in mind that it's an opportunity for return, for renewal, for repentance. I use the term return specifically because while tshuva is often translated as repentance, it comes from the root in Hebrew to return. And so this is seen as a season of returning. And returning indicates a certain kind of belief in the core goodness of people. If we were created in the divine image, as it states in the book of Genesis 1.27, then at the beating heart of human existence, you might say, is the possibility for goodness. Mm -hmm. There is a spark, as the mystics like to say, that is not extinguished. It doesn't mean that we don't err or make serious mistakes. And we need to be held accountable and hold ourselves accountable for the ways in which we fall short of our highest values. But this is a season that is understood in optimistic terms, that there is an opportunity for real change. And one great intellectual in the Jewish canon is the Rambam, Maimonides. Mm -hmm. And he describes what he calls the highest form of tshuva as follows. He says, if you have sinned, you have to be aware of that shortcoming. And then when you find yourself in the same situation again, 
where you are able to commit the same act, which you know is wrong, and you make a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. You willingly choose to make a better choice. That's the ultimate form of tshuva. The rabbis also insist, of course, that the gates of tshuva, the gates of return or repentance, are open every day. So we can't simply wait for the high holiday season to begin that work, but it is a special season. And among the rituals during the season that you may be familiar with is the sounding of the shofar, the special horn that we begin to sound, in fact, 30 days before Rosh Hashanah. Hmm. And that serves as a kind of spiritual alarm clock, if you will. It awakens us. It's a call to move into this deeper place of contemplation and discernment and to prepare for the coming of a new year. Interesting. I resonate with a lot of that. It kind of, it reminds me of the season of Lent, actually, for us leading up to Mm. Easter, Um, that time of personal reflection and opportunity for growth. And I love what you said about the fact that it's not just a season, it's an opportunity every day for us to be reminded that we are, we are ultimately made good in God's image. Um, so you do a lot of, of, like you said, interreligious work. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit to us about how we as Christians can benefit from some of these ideas that you just talked about? Sure. I appreciate the question. And the beginning of that answer is to say that I think we are coming to understand more and more that we are interconnected Mm -hmm. and that if we are interconnected then we need one another in order to grow into our full potential so heart to heart is one modest attempt to say that after so long when religious groups have been arguing and fighting sometimes quite violently as you well know, Mm. about our truth claims. Can we humbly but also confidently say, here are some of the teachings that really matter to us. Tell us if they're helpful. And tell us, too, what is similar and what is different. You know, as you commented, what is similar about what we describe as the Yamim Noraim, the High Holy Days or the days of awe, and Lent. Mm -hmm. There are bound to be things that we share in common, given the histories of our two communities, and there are also things that are different, which has to do also with the intertwining of our communities and our attempts at various points to individuate. And I want to add, too, that part of the motivation is my own experience, studying and working on various projects with people from other religious traditions, I have been moved and I have grown as a human being and as a Jew because of my experience with Christians, with Muslims, with Buddhists, with Hindus, with secular humanists. So that's the context for Heart to Heart. And uh, we're trying to move the conversation forward in terms of deepening the opportunities for literacy and conversation about matters of spirit and ethics. 
Well, I really appreciate that because sitting in the Old Testament, as you talked about our common histories, our Jesus was Hebrew. And so could you talk a little bit about that and kind of helping us understand a little bit of who Jesus is in this common history? Sure. I'm not an expert in the the history of of Jesus and of early Christianity, but what I can say is that Jesus lived in a Jewish milieu, mm-hmm. and he was involved in a series of conversations with other sages about matters of ultimacy. And so many of the points of reference for his teachings, for his sermons, for his parables are a part of an evolving Jewish culture. And so learning about the texts, the ideas, the language that animated so many people in that context can only serve, I think, to deepen one's understanding and relationship uh, with Jesus. Um, Whether you regard Jesus as a person, as a divine manifestation, as a savior, right? Those are all questions um, that are part of this interreligious dialogue. But I think um, the knowledge of the milieu and of the texts and ideas and currents, including the social currents in which he was functioning, um, are vital. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's one of the reasons why we call this podcast Midrash NYC, because mm-hmm. we've been so inspired by a, the Jewish way of learning and the way that you guys play with the text and lift the text and really explore the text. And, you know, Christians, we could benefit so much from some of that and allowing ourselves to to let our imaginations in and be more flexible. And I think one of the other things that we can really benefit from is this idea of, of keeping the Sabbath. Could you teach us a little bit about what we can benefit from, from understanding what you guys know so well about Shabbat? So the, Sabbath or Shabbat is introduced, as I think you know, in the book of Genesis, very early in the story of creation. In the second chapter, in the third verse, we learn that Shabbat, in fact, is described as the first thing, if you will, that is kadosh, that is holy. And that might be surprising because it's not a person or a place or a thing, that is first deemed holy or sacred, but a time. And according to the Torah, God sanctified the seventh day, the Shabbat, after completing the work of creation. A 20th century Jewish theologian and activist who has been an important role model for me named Abraham Joshua Heschel is famous for describing Shabbat as a palace in time. And what he was attempting to communicate was that people placed a premium on their space-mindedness, or as he called it, their thingness, that is an attachment to the dimension of space, and that there needed to be a corrective, that there needed to be greater attention paid to time, to the texture of time. And he saw Shabbat as being a very important corrective to some of the ills, if you will, of modern culture in which she saw that there was this race, as it were, to try and build more and more and to conquer 
in the realm of space. And so he said, what we need to do are to create beautiful cathedrals, if you will, in time. And in articulating Shabbat as a palace in time, he's also doing something that is quite beautiful, speaking of playing with text, that's based on much earlier rabbinic interpretation. Shabbat is articulated right, as sacred, but there are actually very few rules and regulations that are given in the Bible itself about how to observe Shabbat. And so they do something that I think is ingenious. They look at all the rules and regulations as they apply to the building of the most sacred place, which is the tabernacle, the Mishkan. Mm -hmm. And what they say is that all of those forms of milacha, which mean work, that went into building this sacred place are exactly the things that we should not do on the Sabbath. And so there's a beautiful kind of inversion, a play with space and time, with doing and with being. And so Shabbat is understood as a time of, of rest, of reflection, of celebration of the basic gifts of life. Um, as I said a moment ago, a time to be rather than to do. And I think in our hectic contemporary world, where we are often bombarded by work opportunities mm -hmm. through time-saving devices, yes. mm -hmm. and in which time is so easily commodified and people are pushed relentlessly to do more in less time, that Shabbat continues to be a real challenge. So, you know, one question that I think is important for all of us is, what would our society look like globally if people were given more time, structured time, for relaxation, for reflection, for celebration with friends and family, for communing with nature, etc.? Mm -hmm. And I just want to add one other comment that I think is quite powerful from Rabbi Heschel, part of his diagnosis of this imbalance of space and time in his, in his book, The Sabbath, which is a beautiful gem of a book, is that he says that people often are so afraid of their own mortality mm -hmm. that they try and build and build and build as a way of creating firewalls. But as he points out, and as we all know, that is not a solution to the inevitability of our mortality. And so he says the first step you know, in a process of discernment about how we wish to live should involve that kind of reckoning. My life is limited. Now the question is, how do I want to spend my time? And in that context, Shabbat, again, can be a very powerful sacred tool, a practice in which we take time out of our workaday routines and ask ourselves, how do I want to be and with whom do I want to spend time? And to celebrate the gifts that are given uh, before we go back out into the world. The other thing to say is that we are then commanded to go back out into the world and to act with a higher or deeper consciousness. That is to say, if I've experienced something of the beauty of Shabbat, what is my obligation to all the other people that are working so hard 
that are toiling? And how do I shift in my own small ways the kind of culture that we are embedded in, in which too many people are working far too much, being paid too little, and are not given the kind of dignity that should be an inherent part of the ways in which we function. That's so good. There's so much good stuff in all of that. I know for myself, we, we especially on our staff, we keep coming back around to this idea of fear and this fear of death and this anxiety that we all live with. And so many of us, especially in New York City, it's this city, very competitive city that that creates such anxiety in so many people because you always have to be doing more and being more in order to be successful. And it's true. What would it look like if we actually took the time to care for ourselves and to step back and sit out and and look at time differently and, and appreciate what God has given us? Um, how would it change and shape who we are? I know for myself, when I take that time to take a break and care for myself and step back and it completely shifts the way that I look at my life. And right. there's so much about what you just said that really resonates. And I want to just add one other teaching from Heschel as a kind of appendix mm-hmm. to that statement. He does something quite beautiful. Again, this is an example of you know, interpretive creativity and insight. He says that we shouldn't forget that work is also holy. That is, in the second chapter of Genesis, even while Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, they're instructed to work it and to protect it. Mm. But then he says, once they're expelled from the Garden, a part of the curse of that experience is that God declares that they're going to have to toil. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that Heschel then asks in the context of Shabbat and of you know life as it orients around the Sabbath is how much of our time are we spending working and how much of it are we spending toiling? Mm-hmm. And because he was such a sensitive activist involved with African-American civil rights and efforts to end the war in Vietnam, I think he would also demand of us that we ask the question, what about all of those other people that are just toiling too much, who don't have the time and space to collapse those categories, Yeah, to do the kind of personal reflection to have and yeah. to have some, some semblance of, of, of Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a part of the responsibility as I see it, you know, that's attached um, to this sacred institution. There's so much we resonate with in our community with what you're saying as well. Um, our vision statement is is to live out a more just and generous faith, a version of Christianity. Mm. And and in that is exactly what you're just talking about, that, that our work, we are being called to be people who bring about justice and to be generous um, and to bring about shalom, another great Hebrew word. Um, yes. Our community has really been digging into this idea of shalom, which I think is what you're starting to articulate pretty clearly in um, the, the work that God is calling us to do. Will you talk to us a little bit about how you understand shalom? Sure. So as I understand it, based on my reading and experience with Jewish texts and other sources of wisdom, shalom is among the highest, perhaps the highest aspiration for the world in which we live. Mm. 
And in the Bible, it's often used as a description of a state of affairs, of well-being, of tranquility, of prosperity, um, a situation in which there's a sense of manifest divine grace. In the rabbinic tradition, as we talked about before, that grows from the Hebrew Bible, there is a growing significance placed on the ethical dimension of shalom, which is to say, what is our responsibility for overcoming strife, social tensions, any kind of unrest that, that happens within a given community or within a family context or within the individual human soul. There's one statement um, that I wanted to share vis-a-vis -vis shalom just to emphasize its importance in our tradition. The sages said that all that is written in the Torah was written for the sake of peace. All that was written in the Torah was written for the sake of peace. Mm. And of course, many of the rabbinic conversations about shalom also involve a conversation about what is the relationship between shalom and other values, other midot, we call them in Hebrew, like that of justice, like that of truth. And is there a way to put the pieces together, if you will, because ultimately... Right? The goal of shalom as a kind of meta-value is that it permeates all of life. That is to say, it even goes beyond the social-ethical realm, and it's cosmic. So God is also described in various midrashic traditions as the one that brings peace between the upper and the lower worlds, between the sun and the moon, and so forth. And in fact, linguistically, the word shalom has at its core the same root as the word for wholeness, shleimut. So when we talk about peace, what we're talking about aspirationally is nothing short of a of, that is redemptive. And it's one in which shleimut, meaning wholeness, um, is envisioned, you know, coursing through um, the ways in which we live individually, interpersonally, communally, and, and globally. And obviously, um, there's much work to be done on all of those, on all of those levels. Yes. But, um, you know, it is one of those orienting values that uh, is understood in our tradition as being what, what this life is all about. Well, and, and from the Christian perspective, as I listen to you and I'm thinking, you know, about who Jesus is and what he came to teach us, all of his words are focused in on teaching us shalom and teaching it to us through following God's ways for us. And that wholeness that we're aspiring to, we see pictured in Jesus and, and what he's calling us to. And yet... Mm -hmm. I think like, the reason why our church community is so focused on, on speaking about our just and generous actions towards shalom is because we so often make it this internal thing that's just about us. And, and like you said, it's not only an individual, but family and community and city and world. And there's just so much work to be done um, in all of it. 
Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important just to, to reiterate that point um, by saying again that we, we know the complexity and we know the challenges. And we also know that um, none of us is going to do it perfectly in the here and now. Yes. And <laughs> rather than being paralyzed by our imperfections, we have to note them. Mm-hmm. We have to work on them. And you know, continue to move move forward one one step at a time, uh, recognizing that you know the the inner and the outer dimensions of peace, right, are also in- interconnected. It's like what you talked about right at the beginning of the podcast. That whole idea that yes, we've sinned, but the fact that we're making a different choice is what matters. That we are ultimately right. good people who are um, all invited into this peace. Right. And one of you know one of the one of the ways in which we try, you know, to affect change um, is obviously in terms of our own inner constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the question is also one that is complicated by, you know, the the needs that we can meet today, in terms of helping others, and then the systemic needs in our community and in our society. So. Among the other tensions that I wrestle with, and I, and I know many others do, is in seeking a vision of wholeness. Right? We also sometimes refer to that vision, Jewishly, as tikkun olam, the mending of the of the world. In that search, we also have to think about the kind of immediate service and the kind of advocacy that we need to do. So, when and where are we placing an emphasis on? the interpersonal, on the immediate needs in a community, reaching out to someone that is in need of food or shelter, but then also asking the questions deeply about why are there so many people in need of food and shelter, and how does money flow in our society, mm-hmm. etc. That was something that I've been, I've been learning more about is this idea of knowing why you make the choices that you do and... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was reading it from the perspective of like this is very important within the Jewish faith that mm-hmm. if you're going to choose to do something one way or the other, it's it's about understanding it, asking those questions. And we as a community always say that we're more interested in asking good questions than in having right answers. Because again, I think this is where we as Christians have really sort of steered off course at times. We think we have these like blueprint, you know, short answers to all of our questions, and that makes us feel comfortable. But it seems like the Jewish faith really embraces this idea of, of like, no, ask the questions, explore it, understand it. It's important. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a big value. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. And I can do that again. You know, since you're, you're focusing as a community on these different terms, mm-hmm. um, by talking about the 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 word Torah itself. Yeah. So oftentimes the word Torah is translated as law. Um, but in fact, Torah means teaching, and in its narrowest application, it's a reference to the five books of Moses, to the first five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch. But more expansively, right, it's understood as the traditions of Jewish wisdom, both written and oral, and engagement in Torah study with voices past and present is considered to be a sacred act, like 
tefillah, like prayer, or like tzedakah, like charitable giving. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that you are involved in a never-ending creative process, reading, translating, interpreting, and trying to discern what the application is of these teachings in the here and now. And that's a conversation that involves a lot of questions. Yes. And there is a lot of trans-historical conversation that's going on across the ages. So, for example, how do we at once take into account head and heart the wisdom of rabbis from the 2nd century, from the 13th century, and you know, what we think God calls us to do today. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, that's going to require an interpretive process that is complicated, sometimes messy. In our school at Hebrew College, for example, among our rabbinical students and cantorial students, they spend a good deal of their days in our Beit Midrash, which is a house of study. And in that context, they are paired. They have a chavruta, they have a peer with whom they learn, similar to the Hebrew word chaver or friend, and together they piece apart sacred texts on a range of issues. And that kind of dialogical experience is at the heart of our pedagogy. They spend as much time in the Beit Midrash as they do in classrooms because we feel like that experience of learning how to agree and to disagree uh, in the intimate company of other spiritual seekers is something that's absolutely essential to creating the kind of community and society that we that we yearn for. Um, one other thing to say, you know, linking study to prayer, is that traditional Jews usually begin a day by offering blessings of thanksgiving mm -hmm. for the essentials of life for the restoration of one's body and spirit, and for the gift of sight and sound, for clothing, for food. And among those basic blessings is a bracha, is a blessing for the gift of Torah. Huh. And there, the wording is very interesting. It's not simply, you know, thank you, God, for the opportunity to study Torah or to learn Torah, but the wording is to be occupied or absorbed in words of Torah, la asuk bedivrei Torah, and that gives you some sense of of the power of Torah study of this great interpretive tradition. Uh -huh. And uh, I want to just quote one one brief text from the Talmud, which is a well known one uh, for, for many Jews involved in in Torah study, which goes as follows: I've learned much from my teachers, more from my colleagues but most of all for my students. Hmm. And so there's also a sense that, yes, on the one hand, teachers and masters are very important, and to have relationships with mentors and role models is absolutely essential. On the other hand, the flow of Torah moves dynamically, and all of us need to remember that, uh, that wisdom can emerge um, in, in unlikely situations and from people that we might not expect. I love that. Thank you. 
I think you're welcome. I think that's a, a really lovely note for us to end on. Um, one last time to everyone who, if, you, if you're interested in some of the things that Rabbi Orr was speaking about just now, if you'd like to kind of dive deeper and have um, people to converse with or to kind of study a little bit more into the ideas that these Jewish principles and values that we're talking about, what is the name of the website and how can they get involved? Thank you. <laughs> so the, the name of the, of the project as a whole is called Heart to Heart, mm-hmm. and the website is Jewish Wisdom, one word, dot info, www.jewishwisdominfo. And um, I'll also send to you, for those who are interested, um, this short free resource. It's called Seven Key Jewish Spiritual Terms. And you'll see that much of what I've been saying and sharing today is based on a written version of my exploration of these of these terms in this resource guide. It also has several of the quotations that, that we piece together, and a series of guiding questions for reflection and, and meditation. I also just want to recommend that uh, your audience might look at some of the work by my own teacher, Rabbi Arthur Green, mm-hmm. who was an inspiration for this project. Mm-hmm. So those are some resources along with Heschel's The Sabbath, which I mentioned earlier. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Take care. If you live in New York City and are looking for a faith community that is living out a more just and generous expression of faith, then we have two locations, one in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan. Both locations meet at 10 and 11.30 a.m. on Sundays. You can find out more at ForefrontNYC.com. Sound engineering and music is provided by the Astrolab. Organize your digital life at theastrolab.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.